are you settling in for a long winter's nap right now? You better not fall asleep. The word is coming. I'm happy to bring the word this morning. The message today, in a nutshell, sometimes we'd like to know that. Good teaching, by the way, I've learned uh, in all the professional development that I've had uh, as a, oh, I was a school teacher for 16 years, and a lot of teachers in the audience, they know what I'm talking about here. What you're always supposed to say right up front, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them it, and then tell them again what you told them. Am I right? Is that good teaching? All right, so here it is, the message in a nutshell. The gospel's simple. Let's keep it simple. The gospel is simple. Let's keep it simple. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Romans. First thing he said, chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why was he not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In other words, the simple gospel has power all by itself. All by itself. It's the good news, by the way. If you don't know what the gospel is, it's simply, it's actually a word that means good news. And it's the story or the good news about Jesus. And it just has power all by itself. So then the question is, why do Christians and churches, why do they think they need to make it better? Why do they add things to it? Like the gospel is, is that homemade soup. If you've ever made homemade soup before, you know you... You have to constantly taste test it, don't you? You're, you're testing, you're tasting it, and you're like, hmm, it needs a little bit more of this spice and a little bit more of this. But the gospel is perfect just the way it is. We don't need to spice it up. The gospel's simple. Let's keep it simple. This is the message today. This is what we see in the text that we're covering today in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The section heading... By the way, in my uh, Bible, is Light of the Gospel, which is why I titled this message Light of the World, being Christmas and all. I thought it would be fitting. When I thought about some songs that might go with this message, Light of the World came to mind, because there's uh, one song called Light of the World, which Jamie will sing uh, at the end and lead us as we um, finish uh, our worship service today. But uh, the other one is called, Here I Am to Worship. You may have heard it before. The first verse uh, starts off by saying, Light of the world, you step down into darkness. You open my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent with you. And of course, it's referring to Jesus. He's the light of the world because he stepped down into darkness. Really into our blindness. And the gospel, the good news about him, it opens our eyes so that we can see this beautiful life that we can have when we worship Jesus as Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You can say that if you mean it. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, may your word today land on good soil. May it land on a heart that is accepting, that receives it and bears fruit. Father, your gospel, your, your son, it's so simple. Yet, Father, I know there's many still in darkness, but maybe today, maybe the light will come on for them. Father, I pray as I preach your word that I keep it simple and that we hear the truth 
when the truth sets us free and we celebrate because you are the light of the world. In Jesus' name. And the church said? Amen. Amen. Let's get going. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Just six verses today. If you want a Bible, there's probably a blue one in a chair in front of you. They're free. Take it home if you like it. Um, it's yours. They were donated by a friend of ours, and he loves to get the Word of God into people's hands. So if you need a Bible, take it. It's yours. If you want to open it up, if you have a digital Bible, let's go ahead and open that if you'd like. No one will think you're texting your friends. All right, go ahead and take a look. But we're going to get uh, going through the verses. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, whenever you see that word in Scripture, you ask the question, what's it there for? And it's there because in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, which I covered all last week, 2 Corinthians 3, we learned that we, were, we are ministers of the new covenant. So Paul says, therefore, having this ministry of the new covenant, by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. You ever wonder why pastors quit? Why ministry leaders give up? Why they stop doing what they seem to love doing? I looked it up. There's three top reasons. It's the overall stress of the job. It's a lonely job. It's too political. Those are the top three reasons why people give up in ministry. But why do they stay in ministry? Well, as Terry mentioned to me earlier, it's not a job. It's a calling. And when you recognize it as that, when you're in ministry, whether you're a volunteer or you're paid, you recognize it as a calling. You see the importance of shepherding souls of being there for people when life gets really hard, it's something that keeps you going regardless. And that's what Paul's saying here, right in verse 1. He's saying, look at this ministry we have here, it's by the mercy of God. It's our calling. We've got to go and preach the gospel and shepherd. It's what encourages us the most. We don't lose heart because this is God's plan for our lives. Despite the stress and the loneliness and the politics and so on, so if you're a ministry leader today, I encourage you to focus on your calling. Maybe you've been serving for a little while. Maybe you've been serving for a long time. Maybe you desire to be a leader in the church. Can I encourage you today, focus on your calling. If God's called you to it, he will equip you. He will carry you through it, even when it's hard. So I want to encourage you. And if I had a mirror right now, I'd look in it and say the same thing to myself. So we go on to verse 2. Paul, in Paul's day, just like today, I think there's a lot of power-hungry people. Power grabs, they want to they you know, look at me, listen to me, I know what I'm saying, kind of a thing. And in verse 2, Paul says, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Today there are plenty of churches that are tampering with God's word, just like they were back then in the first century. They add their spices to it because they think it'll taste better. There's Christians today that have a personal agenda. And the social media that we have in our world today gives them a pretty big platform. 
but they're not always teaching the truth. It could be a version of the truth, their truth, because they're trying to support their agenda. And here's the scary part. They call themselves Christians, and they use Bible verses to support what they're doing. By the way, whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits. We see that all through the Bible. And they're doing the same thing. So I'm not surprised false teachers take God's word and counterfeit it. And this is how they do it. It's called proof texting. Proof texting is isolating verses in the Bible, using them to establish and support a position. A wise seminary professor once said, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. I'll give you an example to help you out. Let's say I wanted to be, as the pastor of this church, I wanted Life of Purpose Church to be sinless. Like I sent the message to us, to you, that our goal is to never sin again. Because let's be honest, if you never sinned again, I'd have a whole lot less problems to deal with. (laughs) My job would be a lot easier. My calling would be easier. So if I preach this message, I say, I want you to be perfect, never sin again, that's my plan. Well then, of course, I got to prove it, right? I got to come up with a verse or verses to, to prove that this is God's plan. This is my, you know, our plan. So where would I find that verse? Matthew 5, 48. I'll bring that on the screen for you. In that, Jesus said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Boy, that's some pretty convincing verse, isn't it? That should prove my point. You should never sin again. That's God's goal for you. If I preach that, if I put that on the wall, we could paint a nice mural in the back there, and that could be the model verse here. You walk in the church, oh, there it is. Oh, wow, this is a sinless church. They don't sin here. And if, I, if you do, then I shame you and tell you, oh, you just don't have enough faith. And That's proof texting. That's what false teachers do, and honestly, that's how cults begin. They isolate verses. Supporting their agenda. Why did Jesus say that? What is the context of that? Well, it's the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters long. It's a big teaching that Jesus gave. And when we take that verse in the context, because it's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us that you can't live a perfect life. That's God's business. You can't do that. It's not possible. And so he even pointed out, there's all kinds of things where you think you're doing good, but you're really not doing that good. Perfection is not possible. But through Jesus, who was perfect, through him in Christ, as Paul likes to say, we can have victory over sin. When we walk by the Spirit, We can crucify the sin, the daily things that go on in our lives, our sinful behavior, and we can walk with him. So I promise you this, I won't proof text. I'll teach the word verse by verse. That's why we go through the Bible the way we do together. We go through a book and we take our time because you need all of it. 
And then I don't get to pick and choose verses that I like, that, that preach prosperity and abundant life and all of that. I'm giving you a steady diet of all the scriptures. In fact, perhaps in 2024, you might want to set a goal for yourself. Read the whole Bible. Some people do it every year. They read through the whole Bible. They make Bibles. That's a, 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 a plan to read through the whole Bible. Maybe that's something that you want to give a go in 2024. I encourage you to do it. Because when you get the whole word, the whole word of God is powerful. It, it equips you. It, it helps you. But unfortunately, I think a lot of people view the Bible, view the scriptures, like we do uh, that optional side dish when we go to the restaurant. You know, they say, Here, here's your, your meal, you know, you got the steak, the, the, the salmon, whatever you got, you know, and it, oh, it comes with some sides. What do you want? You know, and you pick some, oh, give it a treat. try this, try that, right? And then it comes and you're like, yeah, that don't look very good. Yeah, I'm going to pass on. Be honest, how many of you have done that before? Yeah, okay, I thought so. I thought lots of us would do that. Um, this is like the hard truths of God's word. Some of the side dishes are, are, are tough to swallow, right? It's like the spinach or the broccoli or the Brussels sprouts, you know, and all the kids said, yuck. But I don't want you to be that kind of Christian, the one that only likes the dessert. Because let's be honest, there's lots of verses in the Bible that are sweet, taste good. We like those verses. They promise a great life. I like them too. But you need the whole Word of God. You need a steady diet. The whole Word changes your life. Just think about it for a minute. The Sermon on the Mount. I mean, Jesus prepared for that message. Thousands of people gathered on the mountainside. He preached this message. His disciples were there. They did all the preparations. And some of the things he said were really hard truths. I mean, think about what he said on that mountain. This is in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. You can read it for yourself in Matthew's chapters 5 and 6 and 7. But he said, if you look lustfully at someone, you look at someone and you're like, wow, she's hot. Man, is that, look at those abs. You're looking lustfully at someone. He's saying that's equivalent to committing adultery. You're committing adultery. If you're angry with someone, that's like committing murder. And then here's the one that nobody wants to hear. He says, don't be anxious. Period. Just don't be anxious. Because your Father knows what you need. Man, these are hard truths to live by. Can you imagine that? But what was the response of the people that heard it? At the end of all those verses, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, he, this is what uh, Matthew writes. The crowds were astonished at the way Jesus taught. He taught as if he, had one, he was one who had authority, not like their scribes, not like their normal teachers in their synagogues. He taught with authority. Because Jesus wasn't just dishing out you know, dessert. He was giving them the broccoli and the Brussels sprouts, and he was giving them real meat to chew on. He wasn't just telling them, what they need to do to, to get by, to, to just obey this part of the law. He was saying, look it, I, I'm speaking to your mind and your heart so you will be transformed. He stood up there and he preached to thousands on the mountainside. 
But people heard it as if he was speaking directly to them. And I've had that happen many times at this church before. I preach a message that I feel God has prepared. I have examples. I, t- I stick to the text. And then I have people share with me afterwards, I thought you prepared that just for me. And the answer is, he did. He did it just for you. And that's what happens when you preach the word. When you take in all of God's word, you're going to be just like those people on the mountainside. It's going to get personal. The word of God gets really personal. Because they saw their anger and their lust in a whole new light. They heard from Jesus the sacredness of the marriage vow. They heard how to treat their enemies with love. How to help other people in secret. How to pray like never before. They learned what to do with their guilt and their fear and their anxiety. They heard about how to handle money and what to do with our possessions. And they were challenged to prepare now for heaven. Jesus taught with his power and conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit today. Because the Holy Spirit that was in the men that wrote the Bible is the same Holy Spirit that's in you as a Christian. And so at any point, you can be convicted when you read the Word of God. Have you ever been reading the Bible in a verse or a passage just jumps out at you? Just hits you hard? Sometimes like a two-by-four upside the head? Yeah, that's a good thing. That's the Holy Spirit trying to get your attention, saying, hey, look it, I'm speaking to you. God's talking to you. When you read the Bible, that's how God speaks today. And when you pray, that's how you talk to God. It's a dialogue. The Bible's personal. The Word of God is living and active and sharp, and it uncovers the deep motives of your heart. You know those secrets you have? Guess what? They're not secret with God. And when you read the Word, He's going to talk to you about it. He's going to get in your business. The Word thoroughly equips you for every good work. It's a lamp to your feet and a light for your path. And of course, I'm quoting Hebrews 4 and 2 Timothy 3 and Psalm 119. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful Word because it brings light into darkness. It opens our eyes. It helps us see the truth. And there's many here that can see the truth and see it all the time. Yet, there's some that don't see it. There's some who don't see the light of the world. And we have to ask our question, why? Why is that? Why don't people see the light? Why isn't everybody a Christian? Well, verse 3, Paul says this. If we keep moving in our text, he says, even if our gospel is, uh, is veiled, It's veiled to those who are perishing. If you were here last week in chapter 3, Paul did a flashback to Exodus when Moses was up on the mountain and he would meet with God. He would go into his presence and because he was in God's presence, God's glory would shine on his face and he had to cover his face. The reason why he covered his face is because the glory at that time was fading away because that was the old covenant of works. A conditional promise. You do this, God will bless you with this. But that's the old covenant of works. And Moses had a very shiny face. And if you ever saw it, you would even say it glows. (laughs) If you want the whole song, it's it's out there on social media. 
that I, I gave last week. But the reason he puts this veil on his face is to cover up the glory, the, the, the fading glory. And uh, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says that the new covenant of grace through Jesus Christ, that's a surpassing glory. That's a glory that does not fade away. And that's the glory, uh, that's the, if I, I would say, the permanent solution, the, the new covenant of grace. And we are ministers of that new covenant. And if people can see God's glory on your face, then maybe they'll put their faith in Jesus Christ. So who are these people, though, that can't see God's glory? Verse 3, it says specifically, those who are perishing. People that don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, people that will never believe they don't have faith. In fact, they have something working against them, someone working against them. If we keep reading in verse 4, we see who that someone is. And I think a lot of us are going to find this pretty interesting. Uh, um, maybe you've never heard uh, uh, any kind of teaching on who the devil is or who Satan is, but here I'm going to do that for us today because it's in the text. Verse 4, in, the case, in their case, those who are perishing, it's the God of this world. The God of this world. He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Such an important verse in the Bible for us, often misunderstood, by the way. Some think that this means the God of this world can stand in the way of any person believing, putting their faith in Christ. They believe the God of this world has the power to keep any person he wants in darkness. That's not true. He can't keep any person. But before I explain why, let me tell you who the God of this world is. The God of this world, the Bible says, is Satan, the devil. Um, he's called in other places in the scriptures ruler of this world. He's called the prince of power of the air. And in the parable of the sower, which I'll reference um, a lot today, he's called the evil one who snatches away the word. When Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, before he started his ministry, he was in the desert. He was tempted by the devil. There's something very interesting that the devil says to Jesus. He offers him authority over the whole world, which simply means that he has that power over this world, the one that we live in. He has the power, and the, he offered to give it to Jesus uh, when he was on the earth. So that's kind of scary, I think. It should alarm us. Um, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So I want us to understand something. It doesn't mean he can take someone who can see the light currently, meaning a believer, someone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, who has acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God. The devil can't make that person blind. He doesn't have that power. That's not possible. He can't put someone in the darkness that's previously, previously in the light. But what he can do is keep unbelievers in the dark. And you say, well, how does he do that? And the answer is, with worldly things. As the parable says, he snatches away the word with the world. And I'm speaking of the world in a negative way. Jesus told the parable of the sower and the seeds. How many of you have heard the parable of the sower and the seeds? The, the, the seed is, you know, kind of Jesus gave these, like, examples for the people. 
Um, they were very agricultural minded. They understood planting. Hey, we're in Michigan. We plant gardens, right? Tomatoes, cucumbers. We like that stuff. So we get it. We understand planting a seed. Of course, I don't even plant the seed. I just go to the store. They already planted it for me. All right, pick out the little plant and plant that. That works for me. But if I was to start from scratch, from the beginning, it would be plant the seed. Well, if the seed doesn't land on good soil, it's not going to produce any fruit. So Jesus is telling this parable. It has meaning. He's basically saying um, that uh, there's four responses to the gospel, which is the seed, by the way, um, and it reflects the work of the devil. The seed's the word, the gospel, the good news, the glory that brings light into the world. The seed has to go into good soil to germinate and grow. And a good soil, good soil is a, is a heart that is accepting understanding of the gospel, sees Jesus as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world. And um, that's the heart that the seed needs to fall on. But what happens to the first seed? Just a quick recap here. The first seed falls on a hard path, and it says the devil immediately snatches it away. That's the person who doesn't understand the gospel at all. It's all Greek to them, which is really ironic because the New Testament's written in Greek. Some of the teachers got that right away. The second seed falls on rocky ground, and at first it seems like, oh, it's going to grow, um, but it has no root. And it says that the trials and the tribulations that come upon that person in this world, which we see beside, behind the scenes, of course, is the devil. Putting trials, putting tribulations, putting temptations and persecutions into a person's life. And that person then abandons the faith, or we would say is apostate. Apostasy means that you're leaving, <coughs> excuse me, walking away from the faith. That person doesn't accept the gospel. The third seed, <coughs> excuse me, falls among thorns. It grows up, but it gets choked. What does it get choked by? The cares of the world. The deceitfulness of riches in this world. Worldly things. Once again, the devil is in the details. Think about it. He's the one who is doing these things so that people stay in the darkness and they don't bear fruit. The same thing's happening today as it did back then. The gospel seed is planted. The God of this world is stealing away this with worldly things. He's very good at keeping unbelievers in the dark. However, why can't the devil keep anyone he wants in the dark because he's not that powerful. He can keep unbelievers in the dark. He can't keep anyone in the dark. His power, by the way, was given to him by God. God is the creator of all things. Some people have the wrong idea about the devil. He's not a God fighting with God on the same level. He is not anywhere close to that. They are not two evenly matched gods. Our God, the one we worship today with our songs and the message and our offering and all of that, is Yahweh. He is I am who I am. He is the Almighty God. He is El Shaddai. He is the one true God. And the devil, he was an angel. He was in the presence of God. He was a powerful angel, a guardian cherubim, if you will. We see that in Ezekiel. He was created by God. He rebelled because of his own pride. And the power he has is limited. Because 
hear this. If Satan had unlimited power, nobody would be Christians today. There wouldn't be a Christian on earth. Satan wouldn't allow it. His pride, he wants everybody to worship him, not Jesus. And that's his motive. Now you probably wonder, as I often do, why would God give him so much power? Why would he make him the God of this world? And I can't answer that. I don't know. I'm not God. And if God told me, I'd be like a three-year-old trying to understand calculus. What? We can't grasp it. We wouldn't be able to understand it. By the way, there's plenty of proof that God is more powerful than the devil, and I really want you to know this verse. Whenever you feel like, man, you're being defeated, you should turn to 1 John 4.4. 1 John 4.4. That's a verse that you want to have right up here. Little children, John's writing to, he's kind of Grandpa John at this point, and he's writing to the church, and he's saying, little children, he said, I love you, you're from God, you can overcome them, you can overcome the world, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that comforting? He who is in you, the Holy Spirit who is in you, is greater than he who is in the world, the devil. He's more powerful. But that doesn't mean you should go pick a fight with the devil. Oh, I know people have tried that. It didn't work out very well for them. Ephesians 6 tells us to stand firm with the armor of God. James 4 tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Nowhere in Scripture does it say pick a fight with the devil. Don't do it. But stand firm in the word of God. And since the devil's power is nowhere near God's power, here's the good news. If God wants to bring a person out of darkness into the light, He will do it. Nothing will stop him. Isn't that awesome? If God wants to bring someone into the light, he will do it. And here's how I know it to be true. Verse 6. Verse 6. For God who said, this is Paul, he's quoting Genesis. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We go all the way back to Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But in the beginning, there was darkness. Before the heavens and the earth were created, there was darkness. There was no sun, there was no moon. It was darkness. Complete darkness. And it says in verse 3, God said, God spoke, and he said, let there be light. And out of darkness came light. That's how powerful God is. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Think about that. That means at any point, any time, anywhere in the world, God can shine his light into a person's life. They, they, they might have rejected God for years and years and years, decades, turned their back on God, didn't want anything to do with God or the church, And just like that, flip of a switch, God could turn the light on in their heart. He brings light out of darkness. God said, let there be light. Boy, this is how it happened with the Apostle Paul. The writer of 2 Corinthians and Romans and many of the letters in the New Testament. I mean, Paul, in Acts 26, Paul has this opportunity, this great opportunity to witness to a king. Boy, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? To witness to a king. To share your testimony with a king. 
And he shares this story. He says, you know, I was a persecutor of Christians. I was a zealous Jew, and I was, I was on my road, on the road to Damascus, where I was going to persecute more Christians. I had letters from the synagogue, and I was going to take care of business and have these Christians killed because these Christians don't know what they're doing. The Messiah hasn't come. That's, that, that was the viewpoint of, and still is, of, of many Jewish people today. And, and he goes on to say, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone around me. And those who were journeying with me, we fell to the ground, he says. And I heard a voice in the Hebrew language that said, Saul, Saul, that was his name before Paul. Why are you persecuting me? Isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads? I always wonder, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> and what it means is, isn't it, doesn't it hurt when you kick a cactus? That's what it means. And if you ever kick the cactus, you know it hurts. <laughs> or touched one, for that matter. And what Jesus is saying is, look it, you think you're doing good by killing Christians, but that's who I died for. They're Christ-ians. <laughs> They're following me. He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But you know what? Rise, stand upon your feet. I've appeared to you for a purpose. I'm going to appoint you as a servant and a witness, and I'm sending you, and listen to this part, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, and they can receive forgiveness of sins. That was Paul's calling. And he went everywhere to the ends of the earth, just like Jesus said, with the power of God to share the gospel. Isn't that wonderful? To me, it's the proof that the gospel opens eyes. The gospel brings light into a person's heart, brings light into the world. Sometimes it happens just like that in a moment, just like what did with Paul, but sometimes it takes time. This quick story of, of one of my favorite pastors who's, who's gone to be with the Lord now, but he was a pastor out in California, Ray Steadman. He tells the story of, of a man that he ministered to a long time ago. He was a brilliant engineer. He had a tremendous mind, but he was an atheist. He didn't believe. No openness to the gospel his whole life. And then he fell into depression, severe depression, got fired from his job. Didn't, didn't almost like a vegetable in his life. So withdrawn, his family eventually left him. He was just total despondent. Someone directed him to talk with the pastor, Pastor Ray. At the first meeting, he showed up, no sign of hope at all, didn't believe there was a God, didn't believe Jesus even ever lived, no faith whatsoever. Pastor Ray talked with him, heard his story, and he said, listen, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do to help you, but I don't want to abandon you. I believe there's hope for you. If you'll come every week, I'll meet with you, and I'll do two things. I'll read a passage of scripture to you, and I'll pray for you. The guy consented. He said, okay, I will. Surprisingly, he went. Each meeting, pastor shared a little bit of scripture. He said, does that mean anything to you? He said, no, it doesn't mean anything. Well, I'll still pray for you. Eight months went by. Week after week, the guy showed up. He kept sharing scripture with him. And then finally, one week, he said, does that mean anything to you? He said, yeah, kind of does. He's like, I, I, I was thinking about it the other day, and what, something you said about Jesus in that Sermon on the Mount. And, and it kind of, he said, well, well, pray on that. 
And then the next week, something else sort of clicked. Something else kind of began to make sense to him. And another thing, and another thing, and gradually there became a dawning light in this man's heart. Truth became real to him. The light grew stronger until the day that he openly acknowledged Jesus was Lord of his life, and he surrendered to his will. And he began to blossom and grow. He devoured the Word of God every day of his life. This man became a believer because God said, let there be light. And light came out of darkness through the Word of God. Isn't that awesome? I believe that you, you know someone who's in darkness. That someone might be you. You might be a skeptic. You might be a cynic. I don't know. But there might be something going on, or you might know someone, and you just hope, you just pray. And if it's you, you might not even want to be that way. You want to believe. Most, honestly, most skeptics that I've spoken with, they don't want to be a skeptic. They want to believe. But you hope that God's light will shine into your life, and you hope for that person that you know is in darkness, that they will surrender to the Lord someday. You pray for that, because you know if they would just, just trust in the Lord that they would have peace in their life for the first time. They would have joy in their life. They would have those fruits of the Spirit that everybody truly wants. And I just want to encourage you with these final words, what Jesus said about light of the world, because I think it makes a difference for those that are in darkness. This is what Jesus said. First, he said, you are the light of the world. Christians, you are the light of the world. He said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, let your light shine before other people so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When you do good, when you share the gospel, when you tell people the real Christmas story, that may bring someone from darkness into the light. And remember, don't worry. I, I've had so many Christians say to me, but I'm new. Man, I don't really know the Bible that much. Like, I don't know. The gospel is simple. Let's keep it simple. Your eloquent words are not what saves someone. It's the power of God. It's the power of God. He'll do it. He just needs you to share it. Secondly, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me doesn't walk in darkness. They have the light of life. And as Isaiah prophesied, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God is with us. Jesus is with you. He is with us. He is the light in us. So we need to be the light of the world. Let's share the simple gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What's the greatest gift you can give to someone at Christmas? The gospel. The good news. Love them. Shine your light. Can you do that, church? I pray you can. Jamie's going to come up and sing our final song here. and want to encourage you to sing along uh, as well. Um, but let me pray first. Father, Father, if there's someone here today that is thinking about this and it's making sense, 
Maybe for the first time, something is making sense. Something is getting through the darkness. Father, I pray that light will shine bright. I pray that that many will surrender to you, will call on you as Lord, for we know that this is the best life possible. This is, this is plan A. We love you, Lord. We thank you for being the light of the world and shining your light in us. In Jesus' name, amen.